Our scripture reading today will be from Colossians chapter 4. If you picked up a Bible on your way in this morning, it'll be on page 985. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul writes, starting in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Well, if you're a guest, welcome. Uh, we're in a sermon series uh, wrapping up Paul's letter to the Colossians this morning. So this is our final sermon. We're going to consider these 16 verses together, which Paul writes this church at Colossae. And it's, it's a very unique passage in many ways. We get a lot of names. We get Paul greeting a lot of people and um, giving instructions about those people. But one of the chief characteristics of this passage of Scripture is that it's, a fo- it's focused outward. In fact, the letter ends with a significant change of focus from the inside of the church to the outside of the church. And after all, this is where we should wrap up because if we consider the letter to Colossians and we only think about Jesus, we only think about ourselves, and we never think about people who are not here, people who are out there, people who are in our families, people who are in our workplaces, people who are in our neighborhoods that right now are outside of Jesus Christ and lost and devoid of eternal hope, that should concern us. And so it's appropriate that this letter that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is now going to send us out, send us back into our families, back into our workplaces, back into our neighborhoods to take the gospel there to those people who so desperately need it. I wonder what you think of when you think of mission. When you think of mission, or the church's mission, or the mission of Christ, what do you think of? Do you think of Africa? Do you think of Asia? Do you think of the persecuted church in the Middle East? Do you think of 
missionaries, our own missionaries that we've sent out and are supporting in prayer and financial efforts. That would be very appropriate if you think of that. You should think of those things. You should think about all the unreached peoples of the world. You should think about all those who have yet to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is delaying his coming. Because once that gospel is taken to all the nations, then the end will come. But it's not yet. So you should think about that. But do you also think about your neighbors? Do you think about your family? Do you think about your workplace and those you work alongside and work with? Do you think about people you see around town, in the stores, or driving next to you in your car? Do you think about those people too? Because those people need to be included in your definition of mission as well. Brett McCracken, in his latest book, I like Brett, he's written a, a number of books, he writes for the Gospel Coalition, and his latest book's called Uncomfortable. And I haven't read it completely yet, but I've dipped into it a little bit. And here's something he says regarding our conception of mission and the way we should think about it. He says, Christians must not conceive of mission as only that which takes us far from home or into harm's way. Too often, would-be missionaries are energized by the possibility of going across the world to minister to unreached people groups, but are not energized by the prospect of going across town to engage in cross-cultural mission with local unreached immigrant or minority communities. Why is it easier for us to go to the other side of the world than it is to go across the street and talk to our neighbors about Jesus? It's uncomfortable to share our faith with people in our immediate context because, well, we got to continue to live with them. And it may get awkward if we bring up Jesus. See, when we go overseas and minister to those people, we're never going to see them again. But we're going to see our neighbors again. We're going to see our coworkers again. And things might get awkward. And things might change. And we don't like change. Plus, it's sometimes easier, McCracken says, to care for the soul of the foreigner who we don't know than the proven heathen that we do. But if we don't approach our day-to-day -day lives, neighborhoods, workplaces, and relationships through the lens of mission, we're not doing it right. Mission isn't just something made possible by a passport or a seminary degree. It's a paradigm that should inform everything we do, end quote. That's Paul's goal in this passage. He wants mission not to just be something that a passport or seminary degree issues us into, but rather something that's a paradigm that shapes and informs everything that we do. So the question is, is how do we exactly do that? What does mission look like in the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life? Well, I think in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18, we have a miniature manual for mission. A miniature manual for mission. In these 16 verses, we get three principles, applications, requirements for fulfilling the mission that's been given to us by Jesus. So let, let's talk about those this morning. Three requirements for fulfilling the mission that has been given to the church by Jesus Christ. Number one, bent knees. Bent knees. In other words, prayer. See, the mission of Jesus Christ is not something that is within our power to accomplish. It's not something that is in our ability to transform people's lives, which is why Christians don't pick up arms and try to colonize nations in the name of Jesus. And when the church has tried to do that in the past, it has wet, met, been met with a woeful disillusionment of that prospect. But rather, we realize it's a supernatural work. It's a work that only God can ultimately do in the hearts of people. And that's why Paul, beginning this section of Scripture, reminds the church in verses 2 through 4 to pray, to bend their knees and pray to the God who is able to accomplish the mission. Look at these verses again. Verse 2, Paul encourages us to continue steadfastly in prayer. Verse 3, at the same time, pray for us. And then in verse 4, that we may speak it clearly, which is how we ought to speak. So here's five, five things about prayer we learn in this passage, in verses 2 through 4. First of all, we are to pray relentlessly. Pray relentlessly. 
Where do I get that from? Look at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. There's two words there. We're not just to be steadfast in prayer, staying after it, keep praying, but we're to continue steadfastly in prayer. Why do we need both commands? Because in case you haven't figured it out yet, prayer's hard. Prayer's work. It's work. It's hard. We have to be told, be steadfast in prayer. Then we have to be told, continue to be steadfast in prayer. Because when you're steadfast in prayer, you're going to want to give up. You want to quit. Paul says, don't quit. Continue steadfastly in prayer. We're to pray relentlessly. We're to keep after it. Secondly, pray watchfully. Pray watchfully. See that in verse 2? Being watchful in it. What's that all about? Well, praying watchfully is praying aware. It's, it's being alert. It's being alive to what God is doing in your life and those around you. You're praying intelligently. You're praying missionally. You're praying with expectation that God is going to answer or at least move. And so we pray watchfully. We pray awaiting God's activity in and through our prayers. So we don't just pray just to pray because we're supposed to pray. We pray expectantly, which we'll get to in a moment. But we pray watchfully. We pray alert and alive to what God may be doing in and through our prayers. Thirdly, we pray thankfully. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You see, when we're praying and things aren't necessarily going the way we anticipate because we begin to release, relinquish control and we're now asking God to do things and God's going to begin moving or maybe not moving in ways we had anticipated and we're getting discouraged and we still have to continue in prayer and steadfastly and we're watchful, what should we be occupying ourselves with? Thankfulness. For what can we give God thanks even as we are praying? Because that too will encourage steadfastness in prayer. And that too will encourage us to continue watchfully in prayer. The more thankful we are, the more we will pray. And so Paul encourages thankfulness in the midst of prayer as well. Fourthly, pray expectantly. Pray expectantly. Notice this in verse 3. Paul says, at the same time, this is your praying for yourselves, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. Pray expectantly. Paul says, I want to recruit your prayers for me and for the team that's with me that even while we sit in prison because of sharing Jesus, that we would be enabled to preach Christ, that a door would be open to us, whether it's the physical door of the jail to get them out and deliver them, or that another door might be open inside the jail through which Paul could declare to fellow prisoners the glory of Christ. He knows that only God can do it. God's the one who opens doors to declare the mystery of Christ. And so he asked the church to pray with him that that would happen. And he's expectant that through those church's prayers that he will be able to preach Christ because that's why he lives. And then verse 4, finally, pray faithfully. Notice he says that I may make it clear, that is the word of Christ that I want to declare, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You say, sometimes we think about this, you think Paul is praying for clarity to speak the gospel. Why in the world does the apostle of Jesus Christ, have, of half of all things, have to ask to be clear in the gospel presentation? You ever thought about that? Like, I mean, he knows it. He just wrote like four chapters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and wrote all about the gospel. Why does he have to pray to make it clear? You know why? It's not the content of the gospel that he's asking that the Holy Spirit would help him to make clear. It's the courage to share what needs to be shared to the people he needs to share it to. Pray that I'll be clear. 
that I won't paint the gospel as a gospel that doesn't have demands. You know that, right? We share the gospel, we can blunt the edge of it. Well, I'm not going to talk about sin that much, or I don't need to talk about the holiness of God, or maybe there's another angle on this we can get to the gospel, and we can kind of shave some of the rough edges off so it's not as offensive and all that stuff. No, he's saying, I want prayer that the whole gospel will be shared, that I won't pull any punches, loving punches, but pull any punches about the truthfulness and the claims of Jesus on a person's life. That I won't say, oh, you can just accept Jesus as Savior. You don't really have to live under his lordship. You can kind of just keep doing what you want with your life. But it's grace. It's free. You know, you all got to do is receive it. Just pray the prayer. Anybody wants that. But nobody wants a Jesus that says, hey, come to me and die, and I'll give you rest. Come and rest, but come and die. But that's, that's the offer of Christ in the gospel. So we need to, be, we need to pray for faithfulness. Pray for clarity. Pray that we would share it. So this is, what, this, is what the, this is where the mission starts. And it's not where just the mission starts. It's where the mission continues. It's where the mission is, is made, given progress. It starts and it continues and it will be achieved by bent knees. We got no hope, church, of ever doing our little part toward the mission of God locally, nationally, internationally, without prayer. We got no hope. Our missionaries got no hope. We've got no hope in Owensboro without prayer. No hearts are going to get changed. No doors are going to be opened. No gospel is going to be declared without prayer. You don't pray until you realize you can't do anything. Then you'll pray. So I'm just trying to take away our our perceived props that in the nation in a nation that reinforces our independence and do it if you can and self-will and you can make it happen you can make the american dream happen in your own life you just can't make the kingdom dream happen that's not going to happen on your on your back on your burden on your on your uh your energy your strength it's not going to happen the only way the kingdom advances is through the power of god given to the mission of God through the prayers of God's people. So we got to pray. We got to bend our knees figuratively and literally and call out to God for the, for the advance of the gospel and continue steadfastly in it, praying relentlessly, watchfully, thankfully, expectantly, and faithfully and see what God might do. So as we get ready to turn a calendar year, let's devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's the first principle. The first principle, the first requirement for fulfilling our mission is bent knees. Second requirement, open mouths. Open mouths. Look at verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, I love the balance of Paul's counsel here. In verses 2 through 4, he puts the burden of the mission on God. And he says, we got to pray. we got to bend our knees and call out to God to open doors for the gospel. And then he puts the burden on us. And he says, while you're praying, open your mouth. God's not going to open your mouth for you. All right? The mission is dependent on God. We can't do it without him, but we have a responsibility before him. That is to conduct ourselves in a certain way, but toward those who are outside the Christian faith. And if you're here this morning and, and you're here with family and you're like, whoa, whoa, did I pick a Sunday to come? And you might not even be a professing believer. And I, I'm so thankful you're here. So thankful you're here. Hope you're not offended by this at all. Because maybe you have experience, you've interacted with Christians, and maybe you've seen them over the holidays. You're like, this is why I don't like Christians. This is why I don't like them, because they're constantly trying to convert me, and they're trying to do stuff and all that stuff. But I just want to make sure that you have the real portrait of the way we're supposed to be toward you. Okay? And this is, this is verses 5 and 6 are the way that Jesus tells us to behave. And we don't always get it right, and that's why we need Jesus. Because we're not all about like, hey, we're great, good Christian club, come join us. 
We're like, no, we're wretches, sinners, deserving of hell. Jesus is saving us. He's changing us incrementally. We'll get there one day. Please be patient with us as he is with us. So he, he tells us, bend your knees, verses 2 through 4, call out to God, but also open your mouth. Open your mouth. Now, here's five, five principles for when you open your mouth, make sure this kind of stuff comes out. Okay? Because we don't always need to open our mouths. There is a time to be quiet, but there's also a time to speak. And when we speak, here's the way we need to talk. A, first, or first point, be wise. Be wise. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, what does it mean to be wise? Does it just mean like be clever, like have, be, have say smart things? No. What is wisdom in the letter of Colossians? Paul has used this word at least five times so far in this letter, and we've talked about it at various points along the way. Let me just point out a couple of them. Verse 9 of chapter 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. Then chapter 1, verse 28, Paul describes his ministry as proclaiming him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about chapter 3, verse 16, where we are to, to, to admonish one another in all wisdom. But here's, here's, I think, the rub of what wisdom, speaking with wisdom, is all about. I think speaking wisely means speaking in a Christ-centered way. Why do I say that? Because wisdom in the book of Colossians is encapsulated in Jesus' person and work. Notice with me chapter 2, verse 3. We're at the end of verse 2. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What would be the opposite of that? It would be speaking in such a way that's not Christ-centered. That doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It might have to do with Christianity in the, or the Bible in a broad sense, but not Christ. This is what the false teachers did. Notice chapter 2, verse 23. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, wisdom, speaking in wisdom, means that people leave the conversation with an understanding of who Christ is. Not, do they, but do they gather? See, if we're not speaking in wisdom, people will gather from our presentation of the gospel that it's a do-it-yourself, self-help, get-right-with-God program by which you obey and do a certain number of things, and then you get right with God. If people leave conversations with Christians thinking that the gospel is a good advice program, they, you, you didn't speak with wisdom. They need to know that Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. It's not what you must do. It's what God has done for you. And if they don't understand that, we have not spoken with wisdom. So Paul is calling us to walk in wisdom, to behave in such a way that demonstrates a Christ-centered life, but at the same time speaking Christ-centeredly toward outsiders. So we've got to be wise. We've got to be Christ-centered. Secondly, we need to be courageous. We need to be courageous. We need to seize the moment. Notice what he says, the second half of verse 5. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Making the best use of the time. In other words, availing yourselves of the opportunities that God sets before you to speak in wisdom toward outsiders. Didn't he just pray that that would happen? Right? He prayed in verse 3 that God would open up a door so that they could declare, that he could declare the mystery of Christ. And then in verse 5, he says, when God does that, when God opens the door, walk through it. Open your mouth. Seize the moment. Speak courageously. Open your mouth when God opens the door. All right? So we got to be courageous. We have to make the best use of the time. When God is opening up a door with someone who is outside the faith, we need to make the best use of the time and speak a word of wisdom into the situation. 
centered on Christ. Thirdly, third way to speak when we open our mouths is to be gracious. Be gracious. Look at verse 6. Let your speech always, 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 always be gracious. What does that mean? It means you don't pick fights. You don't try to get into this heated debate. You diffuse situations. You, speak, you seek to speak with kindness and love and patience, asking questions, pursuing clarity, seeking to represent people's positions fairly and justly and truly understand what they are saying before you jump on it with a counter-argument. We are to be gracious. Gracious. You know, unbelievers should leave conversations with Christians even though they think we're wacky and crazy and like, why in the world do you believe such crazy stuff? But at least we were respectful. Like when I interact with, they should not interact with, with, with us in such a way that they interact with everybody else in the world. Because no one in the world responds graciously to people they don't agree with. But they should in the church. They should in the church. And why can we respond graciously, church? Listen, if it was up to us, you don't have to respond graciously. You better fight for every ounce of turf you can get in the life of another person. But if it's up to God and you're resting confidently in him and you've been praying for the person and praying blessing upon them and loving your enemies and praying good things would come and thanking God for the friendship and the relationship that you have with this family member or coworker or neighbor that's difficult to love. If you're praying for them, then, then your, your heart will be gracious toward them, especially as you get in touch with your own need for grace. We should be gracious toward others. Fourthly, be salty. Be salty. Notice verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What does salt do? Well, salt flavors up a, flavors up a dish, right? It, uh, it entices thirst. It creates a desire for more of whatever it's soaked in or so whatever it's soaking or covered in. And that's the idea with our speech. Our speech is to be marked by wisdom, courage, graciousness, and saltiness, such that people, that, that there's, there's something in the way that we talk about Jesus. There's something in the way that we are gracious toward others and courageous that makes them want to know what is driving us to, to have that hope. It's 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Paul expected that, or Peter expected that to be a pretty common occurrence, that people would be asking Christians, hey man, what's up with you? What's going on? Why are you that way? And you know why? Because he, he anticipated that Christians would be salty, and that we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world, and we're not... We're not trampling our salt underfoot by refusing to be salty. But rather, we're, we're stepping into those situations. We're seasoning our conversation with saltiness such that thirst is created in the hearts of people for God and his gospel and his Jesus that he's offering. And then finally, be sensitive. Be sensitive. Notice verse the end of verse 6. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person each person do you know when we should when we think about the mission of god we shouldn't just think about the large unreached masses of the middle east we should think about people people individual people who are the people in your life that don't know jesus individuals name them in your heads right now Bring their faces up before you. We're talking about individual image bearers of God. And when we relate to people, we need to relate to them as if they're the most important person in the world. 
I mean, we need to be sensitive to them, to who they are, to that person. We need to know how we ought to answer each person. There, not everybody needs the same thing. Not everybody's wired up the same way. Not everybody has the same past or the same present or the same hopes for the future. Everybody's different. That doesn't mean they don't mean they don't all need Jesus. He's the one size fits all key for everybody. But everybody's locks a little bit different. And so we need to get to know the person. We need to be sensitive toward the person. And that will help us be wise and courageous and salty and and uh, gracious toward them. So those are those are a couple of principles, okay? Now we're going to spend the rest of the time talking about the last one. So I already said, okay, so what is the what are the three requirements of the mission? First of all, bent knees. We got to pray. Second of all, open mouths. We got to tell people about Jesus. Here's the third. Every Christian. Every Christian. Here's what's required to fulfill the mission of Jesus. The bent knees and the open mouths of every Christian. Every Christian. Including you. Including me. Not just the professionals. Not just the ones who have seminary degrees, which would be a real poor method for kingdom advancement anyway. Got like what? 0.3% of all God's people? 0.00003% of all God's people have that sort of level of education? But no, every Christian, which is why Paul spends the rest of this letter acknowledging the ways in which every Christian, or at least lots of them, participated in the mission of God. We need all hands on deck, all hands on deck in the mission of Christ. So let's talk about five. I've been doing these five things. So we already talked about five things associated with prayer. We got five things associated with open our mouths. Now we got five things associated with every Christian being involved in the mission that we learn from verses 7 through 18 at the conclusion of this letter. All right, let's go with number one. Here we go. The mission of the church is a team sport. Team sport. It's not individual competition. I remember when I learned this um, most profoundly that still sticks with me to this day. Back in 2002, my wife and I, not my wife at the time, but we were very interested in each other and heading towards engagement. We were both on a mission to the college students in Belo Horizonte, Brazil for about eight weeks, reaching out to college students, seeking to build relationships with them, seeking to pray relentlessly, watchfully, thankfully, expectantly, and faithfully for them, and also speak wisely, courageously, graciously, salty, and sensitively towards them. That's what we're trying to do. And I can remember, we, I, I went out with my friend, we, we went out, followed Jesus' methods, two by two, send them out two by two. So I, me and my friend Scott would go out every day, and we stunk. We stink at mission. That was, the, that was our discovery after the first, uh, one, first week on campus. We stink. Brad and Jimmy, they don't stink. Okay? We stink. Because every night when we get back and we gather around the table at dinner and share about what's going on on the campus, Brad and Jimmy got great stories to share. Everything they touch is turning to God-glorifying gold. I mean, they're winning people to Christ. They're meeting people they're already discipling. All this stuff. I'm like, Scott, Mark, what you guys got? We learned how to say hi in Portuguese. And then they looked at us real weird, like, what are you doing here? And then when we tried to initiate a conversation, they just walked away. So I think we stink. And I remember Brad and Jimmy, humble guys, brothers to this day, love those guys. Brad's a pastor in Sparta, Tennessee, said, hey, Mark, Scott, we're all about team wins here. It's not individual awards. A win for any of us is a win for all of us. It's a team sport. And I was like, first of all, you guys are stinking humble. And second of all, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. Uh, it's, mission's a team sport, brothers and sisters. The glory goes to one person, Jesus, for anything good that happens in the kingdom. Any kingdom wins 
get attributed to Jesus. Jesus has all the medals hung around his neck. He gets all the trophies. All we get is participation trophies. Everybody gets one, and you know they're not worth anything. Right? We just get the participation trophy because we were in the game, but we really didn't earn anything. I mean, we just played. Jesus gets all the trophies, but it's a team sport. Everyone has a role. Men and women, boys and girls, we all have a role. Look at the various roles here that Paul lays out for all of his friends in verses 7 through 18. I'm not going to reread the whole passage again. I'm just going to highlight some of the roles that these people had. First of all, Tychicus. He's just a faithful servant. He's a faithful brother. Onesimus, he's a converted slave. Want to hear more about his story? Read the book of Philemon. Aristarchus, I'll get it right here in a minute. Aristarchus is a devoted friend and companion of Paul. Mark is a recovered friend. We'll talk more about him later in the sermon. Jesus, or Justice, is kind of the unsung hero. He just makes the list. We don't even know what he did. Luke is a talented specialist, a doctor. Epaphras is a prayer warrior. Demas is a worldly defector who eventually left the faith. You got a pretty diverse team here. You got faithful servants, converted slaves, devoted companions, recovered friends, unsung heroes, talented specialists, prayer warriors, and worldly defectors. What's my point? Everybody has a role to play. It's a team sport. Mission is a team sport. Second, the mission of the church involves diverse gifts. The mission of the church involves diverse gifts. Was that a pretty diverse list that I read for you? That's a pretty diverse group of people. And you got men and women in the list. I didn't even mention Nympha and the church in her house. We'll get to her a little bit later. So you've got men and women all being involved in the mission, all doing various things. And Paul spends his time in prison writing letters, loving Jesus, serving churches, and honoring co-laborers. He's a beautiful example of what a mature Christian man is. Just spending his time in prison seeking to identify people, every single person that's contributed in any small way to his life and the advancement of the mission of Jesus, and honoring them publicly for it. These aren't rock stars. These are ordinary Christians, which thankfully is the majority of God's people. But the mission of the church involves diverse gifts. I mean, think about some of these. You've got guys on the front lines, like Paul, pioneer, suffering, missionary in prison. You're like, yeah, A-team, superstar. Does he spend time just talking about his other fellow superstars who've really paid the price, who've really counted the cost to follow Jesus? No. He points out encouragers like Tychicus. He says that brother is an encourager. He's a supporter. He's a co-laborer. He's going to come to you, and he's going to share with you this letter, and he's going to encourage your hearts because he's good at that. Me, I kind of... I'm, I'm a little good at the challenge piece. I'm not really good at the encouragement piece. He's really good at encouragement. He'll really encourage your heart. I'm more the prophet. He's kind of the priest. He'll really love you. And then you've got Epaphras. Boy, I thank God for that, brother. This mission would never happen because he's the one who's got the bentest knees. He's the one who's praying like crazy. He's interceding and agonizing. I mean, look at the language of Epaphras. Struggling, verse 12 on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand fully mature, mature in all the will of God. It sounds like he believes that it's up to God. Epaphras is a prayer warrior. Then you got Luke, this talented doctor, this specialist, this Ivy League education, smart. And he writes the Gospel of Luke and most and all of Acts. This little talented specialist called Luke that I pointed out to you is responsible for a quarter of the New Testament. Scholarship. Brilliance. Then you've got Nympha. 
Verse 15, the sweet sister in Christ who's hospitable and opening up her home so that the church can meet. See, it, diverse gifts are in the body of Christ. We need them all. We need the front-line front pioneers, suffering missionaries. We need the, the people that are doing like, like the Amadis and the Dames and the Apps. We need those and the Baldwins that are going out, front-line work, pioneering work. We need those people. And they deserve honor and esteem from us. But we also need the encouragers, the prayer warriors, the scholars, the specialists, the hospitable people who will just love somebody in the name of Christ. So the mission of the church involves diverse gifts. Here's the point. No one person has everything it takes to advance the kingdom of God. Nobody. Nobody is omnicompetent, omnigifted. The whole kingdom's hinging on them. If, they, if everybody else dies, but that person doesn't, kingdom of God will come. No. The only person that, that the, 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 the kingdom is ultimately hinging on is the shoulders of Jesus himself, but no he, other human being. God brings, raises up Moseses of the world, leads them, says you can't go into the promised land. Next, Joshua. We're all interim. We're all disposable. Kingdom's going to keep going after we're in it. When we go to be with Jesus, kingdom's going to keep going on. But here's the thing, we all need each other. We must be careful, therefore, not to judge people in the body of Christ because they engage in ministry differently than we do. God hasn't gifted all of us in the same way. There are some things that God has uniquely gifted you to do that he hasn't gifted me to do, and vice versa. Don't be quick to condemn someone who doesn't immediately jump on your particular ministry bandwagon. Just because others don't do what you do doesn't mean they don't love Jesus or don't care about evangelism and don't engage in it. It just may mean they have different gifts and they're doing it in a different way. On the other hand, on the other hand, this list clearly shows us that no one gets excused for sitting on the bench and being lazy and unengaged in the mission of Jesus. We all got to play. We're all in the game. Whether we're second or third string, we're all in the game. We all must be involved in ministry, seeking to build others up in the body of Christ through teaching and admonishing one another, and we all need to use our gifts, whatever they are, to advance the gospel. We all need to bend our knees and open our mouths, extroverts and introverts alike. Some of us will do this through teaching and writing, with all the labor and toil and reading and study that this requires. Others of us will serve in the unglamorous but crucial ministries of practical service, making coffee, setting up chairs, watching children, opening your home, discipling your family, loving your spouse, serving the church, loving your neighbor in and through your work. And some will pour out their hearts in prayer in the unseen hours of the morning, while others will serve in the quiet but effective ministry of extending compassion and showing mercy to the sick or the elderly or the addicted or the poor or the imprisoned. But the point is we all have diverse gifts and we're all needed for the mission, every single one of us. Thirdly, the mission of the church is an ordinary pursuit. The mission of the church is an ordinary pursuit. Do you think of mission that way? Mission is very ordinary. You don't believe me? Ask our missionaries. Ask the dames how language school is going and raising kids is going. You know what they're doing there? What they're do they'd be doing here, except not learning a language. It's ordinary. It's ordinary. Very ordinary. Don't think about mission and missions as events. Think about it every day. It's everyday stuff. It's very ordinary. We need to widen our notion of mission to include all our, quote, secular work while also dignifying the mundane mission that's at home, being good moms and dads and children and siblings and roommates and neighbors alongside the uncomfortable call to commit to the local church and focus most of our missional energy there through this body, in this community. 
think about it. Most of the people in this list, think about it. You see this verses 17 through 18. Have you ever thought about them before this morning? <laughs> They've been in the Bible a long time. You know, they're there. But most, why haven't you been thinking about them? Because they're ordinary. Most of these people in this list are very ordinary. And here's the good news. Ordinary people make the Bible. Isn't that encouraging? Ordinary people make the Bible. God doesn't just put his superstars like Moses and David and Abraham, but he also includes Tychicus and Nympha. Because ordinary people matter to God. Ordinary people matter to God. And there are far more ordinary people in the Bible and in heaven than the superstars. Far, far more. And we're going to actually meet these people one day. We're going to be walking on the new heaven and new earth, walking by a guy, I'm be walking by a guy, hey, hey, I'm Mark. Hey, I'm Tychicus. Tychicus, you mean, yeah, yeah, I made the Bible. Want a selfie? <laughs> oh, yeah, man, come on. You like me, you made the Bible. Awesome. I mean, that's what we're going we're gonna to be meeting. These are real people. Nympha, tell me about the house church. We didn't get a lot of detail from Paul. Onesimus, tell me about your relationship with Philemon. Mark, tell me how the whole breakdown happened with Barnabas and Silas and Paul. Justice, we know you're called Jesus, but that's about it. But you're a pretty humble guy. Because you didn't even want to be called that. You just say, call me justice. I'm not worthy of the title Jesus. Epaphras, tell me about your long nights in prayer. So, the point is, this the kingdom of God is not sexy. And it's not self-actualizing. It's just ordinary everyday obedience, day after day after day after day in the same direction. That's all it is. To commit to and simply serve in a church without anyone noticing or without anyone having selfies or exotic stories to show for it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. There is something countercultural and revolutionary in a church simply being a church. A community of actively serving members practicing resurrection in their neighborhoods, in their families, in their workplaces, that's a beautiful and powerful witness. Even if it doesn't involve explosive growth or the conversion of celebrities, because we all need those. We need more celebrity conversions to advance the kingdom. You know that, right? Sarcastic. I, I do hope many celebrities would be converted and some sort of 10-year plan for seven new church plants, that's the only way, you know? No, just the ordinary pursuit of faithfulness. It's not that we should lower our expectations. God let us dream dreams. God let us have ambition. God let us have vision and drive and desire to not be content with where we are. God let us have that. So I'm not trying to squelch the ambitious visionaries in our midst. But it's just that sometimes the most effective mission, if you look at the life of Jesus and the Bible itself, is just patient and quiet and unheralded. That's the most effective mission. Sometimes it's the 60-year-old pastor who led his congregation in rural North Dakota for 40 years, helping innumerable broken people find healing and hope in Jesus, and he never started a blog and he didn't attend Catalyst. Shame on him. He could have been so, so much more. The 39-year-old insurance salesman who only has 62 Twitter followers but has led three children and two co-workers to Christ. Maybe it's the stay-at-home mom who volunteers her time as she's able in discipling her children, but also giving her time to other needy women in the church or sisters in the church or even to a battered women's shelter three days a week and organizes meals for the needy families in the congregation. Maybe it's the 14-year-old girl who resists the cattiness of junior high school and the cliques 
and seeks out and gets to know the unpopular kids. There are many ordinary ways to be ambassadors of the extraordinary gospel, but none more important than building up the body of Christ by committing to a local church, however boring it may seem. The church is imperfect, it's messy, it's maddening, and at times it's mundane. But she is the body of Christ. She is the organism that God has chosen to physically manifest the Son of God to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. It may not sound exciting. It may seem too predictable and institutional. It's certainly not going to be comfortable. But showing up at church, throwing yourself in, caring for the people, getting to know the people, opening your home, loving on your brothers and sisters week after week after week is a revolutionary act of mission that speaks to the principalities and powers death to you and your way of running this world. Kevin DeYoung says, in the grand scheme of things, most of us are going to be more of a Tychicus or Nympha than an Apostle Paul. And maybe that's why so many Christians are getting tired of the church. We haven't learned how to be part of the crowd. We haven't learned to be ordinary. Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional times seem like a waste of time. Church services are forgettable. That's life. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It's a long obedience in the same direction, end quote. Two more very quickly. The mission of the church is relationally messy. The mission of the church is relationally messy. Where do we learn this? We see this from two people. I want you to notice their names quickly. First of all, notice verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Say a word about Demas. We don't know much about him since he's only named three times in the New Testament. He's mentioned briefly here and in Philemon 124, and Demas will eventually abandon Paul because he's in love with the present world, 2 Timothy 4.10. I have hope for Demas. I hope he got recovered and came back, and we'll see him in the kingdom. Don't you? Love hopes all things. Let's hope Demas is in the kingdom one day as a trophy of God's saving grace that even though he abandoned Paul at once because he loved the world, and he didn't want to follow Jesus, and the cost was too high, and he left, that he'll, have, he'll experience a recovery like Peter. Do you know God brings back people who deny him and leave him for love of the world? God brings them back. He brought Peter back. Why couldn't he bring Demas back? But we don't have that word definitively. Maybe he didn't come back. Maybe he didn't end well. Maybe he abandoned the race before the finish line. But I'll tell you about someone who definitely did come back, and that's Mark. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Do you know how powerful that phrase, when he comes to you, welcome him, is coming from Paul? Do you know what happened between Paul and Mark? Mark first shows up in Acts 12, 12, when a prayer meeting was held in his mother Mary's home. And in Acts 12.25, we learn that Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem back to their home base in Antioch. And then in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas part ways because of a sharp disagreement. That's all the text says concerning Mark. They had a disagreement about Mark. Barnabas, loving, encouraging guy, let's give Mark a second chance. Paul says, no, I'm not giving Mark a second chance. He left us. Tell him to go home. Tell him to go home. So that ends up creating a split team. Silas going with Paul, Barnabas going with Mark. Paul refuses because Mark had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. And now, 12 to 14 years later, Paul tells the Colossians to welcome Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and in his final letter, Paul will ask Timothy to get Mark, 2 Timothy 4.11, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Mark, in other words, had a shaky start, but he had a glorious reconciliation. Does this teach you something about the mission of God? The mission of God is relationally messy. There's relational breakdowns. There are difficult things that happen. 
brothers and sisters are severed from one another. Right? That happens. It's in the kingdom. It's in this letter. So what do we learn from this, and what do we do about it? Well, how was Mark restored? How was he brought back? That's what happened. Paul receives him back. He says, I welcome him back. Church, you welcome him back. Don't you dare stiff arm Mark because he sinned against us at one time. You welcome him home. So how was he restored? We don't know exactly. But in addition to the role of Barnabas, who no doubt was an encourager and a cousin to him, Paul and Paul, being so generous and large-hearted and welcoming him back, not just into fellowship but into ministry, Peter probably played a role too. Why do I say that? Because in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter mentions Mark and calls him my son. Peter knew a little bit about failure too. He knew a little bit what it was like to be disqualified from ministry. He knew what it was like to fail. And he knew what it was like to be reinstated. Mark, you're my son. You come over here. We got grace enough for this because we're a church. He also knew the joy of being restored, and he wanted Mark to have that same joy. No doubt his example, his advice, his prayers, his support proved invaluable to Mark on his journey back into ministry. And boy, did Mark ever get back into ministry. God used Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, to write the gospel of Mark. This miserable failure, who initially proved so unreliable, was received and restored by God to fulfill the awesome task of being inspired of the Holy Spirit to record the words and works of the Son of God. Isn't God amazing? Isn't He good? Isn't He better than anything else? I'm not done yet. I got one more point. Here's my final point. The mission of the church is for losers only. The mission of the church is for losers only. What qualifies you for effective mission is your neediness and your brokenness and not your I've got it all togetherness. That disqualifies you. If you are sufficient in and of yourself to live life without Jesus, get out of the mission. But if you will own your neediness and your brokenness and your weariness and your tiredness and your fatigue and your eye, if Jesus doesn't come through, I'm toast. If you will own that, you will be mightily used by God in whatever way he chooses. It's your weakness that makes you useful to Jesus, not your strength that gets in the way. None of us is perfect, and that's okay. As Anne Lamott said, it's okay to be crazy and broken. All the best people are. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is okay. You don't have to be. You can be a loser and be useful because those are the only people that God wants. For consider your calling, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, the losers, in the world, the eyes of the world to shame the wise so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Time after time, the greatest and most influential leaders were the imperfect, uncredentialed men and women who would never make candidates of the who's who list or VIP list, but they will in the kingdom. Most of the ki kingdom's greatest right now that are in heaven that have the greatest number of awards are people we've never heard of. Never heard of them. They weren't in the Bible. Because that's the way God does it. Think about it. Joseph was disowned by his brothers and thrown into an Egyptian prison, later to become the prime minister of Egypt. Noah got drunk and passed out naked and rescued all the species on the earth from extinction. Abraham was at times a cowardly husband and a dysfunctional father and became the spiritual forerunner of all who have faith. Isaiah was a preacher who was rejected by his contemporaries and sawed in half at his execution, and he became one of the most influential voices in the history of the world. David, the youngest of seven brothers and 
a son of an obscure shepherd, became the king of Israel and a writer of over half the Psalms, even though he murdered people and committed adultery. Peter was a hothead and a fisherman and an erratic disciple who denied Jesus three times and later to become a bold truth teller who courageously gave up everything for Jesus and was crucified upside down. Mary was an unwed teenage girl from a small town and became the mother of God's son. Ruth was a foreigner, Rahab was a prostitute, Bathsheba was an adulteress, and they were all honorably included in the family tree of Jesus. Paul was once a blasphemer and persecutor and bully and racist toward Gentiles, and he became apostle to the Gentiles and writer of one-third of the New Testament. And then there was Jesus, who came to his own, but his own did not receive him who had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, who died on a trash heap of a condemned criminal. And through this excruciating loss, Jesus won, won salvation for billions of souls and prepared the way for all things to be made new. Now and forevermore, the government of the whole universe rests squarely on the shoulders of a nobody who has become And so we follow in his steps as ordinary people with bent knees, open mouths, involving ourselves in the ordinary, diverse, wonderful team sport of building his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to meditate on the ordinariness of our calling. At one level, it's profoundly extraordinary. It's the most exciting and thrilling thing we could ever be called to in all of our lives to advance the kingdom of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to participate as co-laborers and co-workers in the fields. But at the same time, Father, we thank you that the pressure's off because we realize that we're not indispensable. And that creates a great freedom and liberty for us that we can roll up our sleeves and engage in ministry and care for people and open our mouths and bend our knees just as thousands and millions and if not billions of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us have done and passed into your glorious presence having lived an ordinary life a long obedience in the same direction and heard well done my good and faithful servant may we all live to hear those words and may we all be content to serve you in the ordinary, mundane, miraculous work of your mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.
the security meeting with the sheriff's department. Guys, I believe you all know about that from the emails. That'll be tomorrow evening, 645 here in the gym. Uh, midweek service this week with Heritage Kids, nursery, uh, and the meal, 530 to 730. And then men's breakfast. We have that coming up again next Saturday, guys, 7 o'clock. Please join us for that in the, in the lunchroom <laughs> fellowship hall. And then next Sunday evening, we will take the Lord's Supper together at 5 p.m. in the evening. So be sure to mark that on your calendar and make plans to join us for that. Let me conclude with this encouragement to you from, the, uh, from Colossians. As we conclude this series this morning, I want to conclude where Paul began and say to you, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae and at Heritage, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Go in his peace.